morning we're jumping into Matthew chapter 13 and we are continuing in this series that we've been in all fall called uh, The Return of Jesus. And I don't remember any moment in our church's history, we've been a church for almost 15 years now, and I'm not saying this hyperbolically, I don't think I ever remember a season where more people asked this simple question or some form of this question, Dave, why in the world did you choose to teach on these things right now? <laughs> One person like laughing with that, and they're like, yeah, like why, why now? And, and you know, and I've, I've had so many conversations, like, like, why are we having this conversation now? And, you know, one of the things that uh, our, our elders do every year is they get away and they pray and they just say, hey, God, what, what is it that we should lean into as a church family in the year ahead? And, and this conversation that we're leaning into right now, this fall, uh, has really been on our calendar for about a year and a half. And so what we're talking about is not a reaction to what's happening in, in the world around us. It's not a reaction to your news feed. It's, it's not you know, some like kind of swelling up a fear inside of us going, oh man, we, we, we've gotta get going. We just believe the Holy Spirit has been leading us over the last couple of years and uh, to lean into this. And this is what I talked about if you're with us on the first week of this series. You know, as followers of Jesus, if all of your faith is merely resting in the historicity of the gospel, you know, like the, the past, the life, death, resurrection, you know, the, the, the cross, the ascension, all of those things, so huge, the story of Israel, like, if, if your faith is only rooted in the past, but you have no mooring for the future where things are going, it's like a bridge that only is secured on one side. And I think one of the things that we've learned over the last couple of years in the midst of all of the shakings that the world has gone through is that the human heart is easily shaken when our understanding of the future feels uncertain. Like when when you have this uncertainty about where things are going, you are prone to deception, you are prone to distrust people around you, you're prone to division. And so we've been praying into these things for a while and we felt like the Lord just kept leading us kind of to this point. And so I just wanna just lovingly say, maybe you've been all in on the conversation this fall, maybe you've been all out, maybe you don't know where you're at. I just wanna encourage you to just keep asking the Spirit of God, is it possible that God has something more for you in this season? Is it possible that he's just trying to, to, to root you and establish you and, and, and take you somewhere um, further? And I just want us to keep coming to the conversation with humility and charity towards one another and, and just going, hey, God, what is it that you're, you're trying to do? And so week one, if you were here with us, just kind of a quick recap. Week one, we looked at the various paradigms and perspectives that we all tend to bring to this conversation around the end of all things. And we said, how do we begin to align our various perspectives around the teachings of Jesus where he says, you know, the end of all things is not gonna be some terrible, ultimately it's not gonna be some terrible calamity. The end of all things will be a wedding party, be wedding bells. And we, we talked about that beautiful imagery that Jesus gives of the Galilean wedding and, and what it looks like. You don't know the day or the hour, but you understand the season and like a bride gets ready for the wedding, the followers of Jesus are going, hey, we're getting ready for the wedding, whether it's 10 years from now, 100 years from now, we don't know, we're going, how do we get our hearts ready for that reality. And so week one was about our perspectives or our paradigms. Week two and three, we came to Matthew chapter 24 and we said, okay, in light of those wedding bells that are coming, what are the things that are gonna unfold between now and then and how do we just know how to pay attention to the things that Jesus told us to look out for? And so we went to Matthew chapter 24 and we looked at those things over the last couple of weeks. And then from now until the end of November, we're just gonna deal with the practical, sort of the, the so what. So if, if all of this is true, which we believe it is, if human history is really heading somewhere under the gracious, wise leadership of King Jesus, 
How should we prepare our hearts for the moment when we will encounter him? How do we prepare? How, how do we live well? And the way that we're gonna do this over the next five or six weeks together is we're gonna hone in on the parables of Jesus. Now, I wanna give us just a quick word on parables and then we're gonna look at one very specifically this morning. You know, parables, they were quite simply just really short stories that Jesus would use to reveal spiritual truths. Short stories that Jesus would use to reveal spiritual truths. Parables were not just a tool that Jesus used. Rabbis during the day of Jesus used parables. Uh, I would argue that we use parables every week when we're explaining the scriptures and we take something practical to help you understand something spiritual. Uh, A parable, it was short, it was simple, it was accessible, which means anybody could grab hold of it on some level. And yet in other ways, it wasn't just accessible, it was almost inexhaustible. In other words, you couldn't get to the bottom of it. I believe a good parable, you know, the parables of Jesus are like the ocean, so shallow that anybody can enter in, but so deep that no one could swim to the bottom. So you think about the ocean, a little baby can get into the, the, the water right there on the edge, but nobody, no matter how strong of a swimmer, are, swimmer you are, you could get to the bottom. I think about one of my good friends years ago, spent three years in one of the parables out of Luke chapter 15. He had intended to write a book on it. He spent three years in one parable, and I said, what did you learn at the end of three years? And I'll never forget this. He said, three years was not even close to enough time. So accessible, so shallow, yet so deep, so contextual. You know, Jesus would look out at his audience of farmers and fishermen, and he'd use images and things that they were used to. And the the, the essence of a parable was Jesus going, hey, this thing that you understand will help you grab some revelation about this thing that you don't yet understand. Parables, in one way, they serve like mirrors. You look at them, you see yourself. But they're not just mirrors, they're windows into the world that God is inviting you to live in and to walk in. But they're not just mirrors and windows, they're doors that ultimately say, hey, do you wanna come in and live this life with me? And so this morning, we're we're gonna sit with one of Uh, 10 parables that Jesus told about the end of all things. At least 10 of his parables spoke to the end of all things. And this morning, we're gonna look at what I believe is one of the most uh, pointed and important. I think it gives us wisdom for the moment that we're in. So look at Matthew chapter 13. We're gonna start in verse one together and uh, give just a little bit of context and then we'll jump down uh, to the actual parable. It says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the lake And such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it. And while the people stood on the shore, and then Jesus told them many things in what? Somebody shout that out with me. Told them many things in? In parables, right? So he's gonna start telling them some parables. Go back to verse one and and look at how this chapter begins. I think it's really important. It says what? That same day. Which begs the question, what same day? Like, like what, what, what was the context of these stories that were going on? And you go back and you look at Matthew chapter 12, and I'll just kind of give you the highlights. Matthew chapter 12, I believe, is one of Jesus' most difficult days, kind of in his early uh, life of ministry. And so remember, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his earthly ministry. The first part of his ministry, he lived in rather obscurity. He was gathering disciples around him, performing miracles, teaching Uh, things were going, and then all of a sudden, his celebrity status began to grow, and the opinions about Jesus began to diverge pretty sharply. Uh, I love the great theologian, Bill Murray, uh, if any of you know him. I love love Bill Murray. 
You know, but uh, Bill Murray once said, nobody wants to be rich and famous. He goes, you want to be rich and uh, anonymous. He goes, you wanna be rich and anonymous because fame brings all of the challenges that your wealth can't cure. He goes, the sweet spot is to be rich and anonymous. Rich and nobody knows about it. Um, Jesus did the exact opposite. Um, He was famous and poor. So he had all of the baggage, he had all of the challenges, he had all of the things that came with fame everywhere that he went, but he had none of the comfort that was provided of being rich. He was, he was constantly moving from place to place. And you get to this moment in Matthew chapter 13, and all of these things begin to unfold right before it. Jesus' cousin is beheaded because of his allegiance to Jesus. We're told in other parts of the scripture that Jesus is heartbroken over this. Uh, that same day, Jesus is, is accused of being filled by the spirit of the devil from the religious leaders. Another group plots to kill him. His own family decides to come and sort of rein him in because they believe his teaching is getting just a little bit out of hand. It's like thing after thing after thing. And so Matthew chapter 13 opens up. It says that same day, that same day of what? The same day that he's grieving the death of his cousin, the day that he's being falsely accused, the the day that there is a death threat against him, the day that his fame is bringing him into scenarios that he doesn't want want to be in. It says that same day, look back, what does he do? It says he leaves the house and he goes out and he sits by the lake. And I'm convinced he wasn't going out to the lake because he wanted to preach to a bunch of people. (laughs) I believe he's like, hey, I just wanna go out and sit by this lake that I created. (laughs) That have spoken to existence. Jesus, like, I'm just gonna go enjoy it. And what happens? The crowds show up and Jesus begins to teach them. But he's gonna teach them in parables. So he's gonna tell them all these stories. First story that he's gonna tell them is about why the human heart sometimes responds to God and sometimes doesn't. So he tells this, this story. But I think ultimately what's happening in Matthew 13 is Jesus is gonna say, let me take this very difficult day from my life to help you understand how to deal with the more difficult days that are gonna come in your life especially as you seek to follow me and as human history keeps moving forward. Let me take this difficult day and help you understand your difficult days that will come as you follow me. That's why I think it's so important when he says that same day. Jesus isn't just teaching these things in a vacuum. He's not just going, what should I teach him today? It's like, hey, that same day. And he tells them this parable. Look with me, jump down to verse 24. This is the parable that Katie just read over us. It says, Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. That's a tool bag thing to do. And then went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Verse 27. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't you, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did all these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? Now, I just want you to pause for a moment. I know Katie just read this and you know what Jesus is gonna say. If any of you have, raise your hand if you've ever had a garden before, I'm just curious. If you've ever had any plant life that you ever tried to take care of, um, one of the most difficult things and frustrating things to do is to weed that garden, right? So if somebody showed up at your house and said, hey, Brandon, can I come over and weed your garden? Like, uh, no catch, can we just weed it? What's the answer? <laughs> yes. Of course, I love you. Do you wanna be written into my will? Absolutely. Yes, you can weed the garden. And so I just imagine Jesus is telling this story by the lake, you know, somebody came in and sowed weeds in in the field and and they said, do you want us to pull them up? And in their minds, all of them are going, yeah, of course. But what does Jesus say? Look at the next verse with me. 
What's he say? Not a trick question. What does he say? No. And you can almost imagine everybody starts mumbling. They're like, wait, what? Did I hear him right? Was that the noise off the lake I couldn't quite hear? He goes, he goes no. He goes, no, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. This is gonna be a key verse that we're gonna really dig into. It says, let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvest, harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now, if you just stopped here, if you didn't have anything else uh, in, in this parable, uh, all of a sudden you'd be left with going, okay, what does this little story mean? Like, how do we, how do we unpack this? And, and if we didn't have the rest of Matthew chapter 13, you might be tempted to go all over scripture and to go, okay, well, this is the person sowing and this is what the weeds and the weeds mean. And, and uh, you might come up with some crazy interpretation, you know, why you should invest in crypto this week and God's gonna bless it. And, you know, like without context, you can make the scripture say almost anything you want them to say. But I, but I love it. Jesus doesn't leave this important moment up to our imaginations. He, he teaches, he goes on and teaches another parable or two. Jump down to verse 36. It says, then he left the crowd and he went into the house. And so remember, it had been a bad day. He goes to the lake, the crowd shows up. He leaves the lake to go into the house. Watch what happens, the crowd follows him. His disciples came to him. I just love the kindness of Jesus because I just imagine like, guys, get out of the house. Give me some me time. But look, they, they come to him. And they said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. There was something about this parable that got their attention. They're like, explain this to us. And I love this. Jesus is just gonna give his disciples a decoder ring, if you know what those are. Like, he's like, I'm just gonna break this down for you. I'm gonna give you the key to the map. There's gonna be no guessing. Just listen to how clear Jesus is gonna get. Verse 37, he answered them, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The son of man is Jesus. That was his favorite title for himself. He goes, he goes, the one that sowed the good seed is the son of man. Verse 38, the field is what? Shout it out. The field is the? The field is the world. So he's gonna go, so in this scenario, he goes, what we're talking about is, is the world, not just the church, not just some far-reached place. He goes, he goes, this is a parable about the world. And he goes, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom, he goes, so in this metaphor, you know, sometimes he would use that imagery of seed to talk about the scriptures or whatever. He goes, in this parable, he goes, the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom that I have sown into the world, all over the world. So Jesus, like the farmer, he's gone all over the world. He's put followers of Jesus in every sphere of society, in every place. He's put them there. Listen to this. And he goes, and the weeds are the people of the evil one. Verse 39, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. And the harvest is the what? Into the age. And the harvesters are the angels. And he goes, as the weeds, verse 40, are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. So Jesus goes, at the end of all things, I will deal with all sinful systems and I will deal with all sinful people. And, they will be, and the angels will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 43. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
I love this moment. Jesus would end so many parables this way. Whoever has ears, what? Let them hear. Because Jesus knew it was possible to be the proud owner of ears, but not hear. He knew it was possible to, to own a human heart, but to not receive the word of God, to not, to not really understand it. And so Jesus tells them this parable, and you can almost imagine they're just like, what? What are you speaking into? And, and here's what I love about the genius of Jesus. He's had this really bad day. He knows they're gonna have really difficult days as human history continues to build towards the return of the Lord. And he goes, let me tell you something to help you understand it so when those days come, you don't lose your faith, you don't shrink back, but you live into the purposes and the plans that God has made you for. And here's what I love about this really simple story is I believe Jesus addresses three of the primal questions that rise up in our human hearts when the world begins to shake. I believe he answers three primal questions that rise up in our hearts when our world begins to shake. Have you ever noticed you ask different questions on hard days than you do on good days? Like when Sydney and I were on our honeymoon, good day. I wasn't asking very hard questions. It's like, where do I get another shrimp cocktail? You know, it's like, um, <laughs> when you're having a good day, you ask pedestrian questions. When you're having a hard day, have you noticed? On hard days, you begin to ask the deeper questions, I believe this is why Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's actually more to be gained in the house of mourning, than the house of joy, because you ask different questions when the world begins to shake. But I believe you're gonna see three of these questions, these primal questions of the human heart being answered because Jesus knew your world would shake. Sometimes it's personal shaking. Your marriage did not get restored. The job did not come through. The cancer prognosis was worse than the doctors thought it would be. Sometimes the shaking is personal. Sometimes it's what we've been experiencing in the last seven or eight days. It's global. But Jesus knew when the world would shake, the questions of the heart would rise up, would be different, and he begins to address them in the parable. And the first question that I think he speaks into is this. It's the question of, so how did we get here? <laughs> like, like, how did the world get in the shape that it's in? And some of you are going, where'd you see that question in the parable. Look back at verse 27 with me. I think it's the essence of that primal question, how did we get here? The owner's servants came to him. So remember the owner in the parable is Jesus. His servants, the disciples, they came to him and what did they say? They said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? And if so, then where did all these weeds come from? This is that primal question of the heart that the disciples are experiencing what I often refer to as the expectation gap. What they expected and what they experienced as they followed Jesus were different. And have you ever noticed the bigger the gap between what you expect and what you experience in that gap is disillusionment, deconstruction, despair, distrust, all these things stir up when there's a gap between what you expected and what you experienced. And the disciples are going, hey, if, if you really are good, if you really did create everything good, if you really have sown good people all over the world, then why is there so much heartache, violence, brokenness, and pain? The disciples are going, how did we get here? Have you ever had one of those like, how did we get here moments in life? Remember being in college and Aaron Etheridge, who's one of my dear friends, one of our, our pastors who used to be here with us in Nashville. He's now in the Middle East and they're, they're doing well, by the way. Thanks for all your prayers. It's tense, but they're doing well. 
But I remember when Aaron and I were in college, he drove through Nashville and one night he and I went to dinner and some of you heard this story before. After dinner, it was like seven o'clock and it's like, what should we do? And for some reason we decided, let's drive to Chicago. And it's like the most college thing ever. You know, no money, no preparation, no plans, no place to stay. Got in the car with nothing but a bunch of dreams and we drove all the way through the night to, to Chicago. We get to Chicago, hang out all day, have no money, no place to stay. And so, uh, you know, we decide, okay, now we have to drive back through the night. And so we're driving back through the night from Chicago to Nashville. And I don't remember exactly like what happened. He doesn't remember what happened, but it, we woke up the next morning. We're sitting in our car off the side of the interstate somewhere in Indiana. The car is running, the heat is blasting. Neither one of us remember pulling off the interstate, which is terrifying. And I'll never forget, we wake up and I look out of the car and I kid you not, there is a goat looking in our car. <laughs> Here's what I love, not a drop of alcohol is involved in the making of that memory. Like just college guys, just exhausted, running on fumes. And I remember we sit there and we're like, how do we get here? Do we make it, like where are we? Did you make a decision to pull? No, I didn't. And it's like, thank God we're alive. Like we're alive. And, and uh, checking our car for dents and all sorts of things and making sure we didn't hit anybody or anything. And, here we were, like, how do we get here? Guys, life is gonna be filled with these how do we get here moments. You read the headlines, and it's like, how did we get here where we're debating over what's evil and what's not evil? How do we get here? How did we get here with all of our confusion around reality and truth, and how do we get here? How do we get to a place where it's so hard for people to collectively agree on right and wrong? Like, how do, how do we get here? And like, we could go through and we could, we could do a whole sermon series on those things, but I believe as, as people were sitting here in a lot of ways going, how did we get here? And, and Jesus tells this story, remember, this is about the end of the age, and he's just, he's talking about this reality that's gonna keep raising up in the human heart, and it's this reality of the human heart that's just gonna go, Lord, how do we get here? If you're in charge, if you're good, if you're moving, how did we get to this place? Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's communal. And I want you to notice Jesus' answer initially, it, it, it feels a little pedestrian. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It, it feels a little too vacation Bible school, sometimes to satisfy the modern heart, the modern mind. But look at the way that Jesus responds in verse 28. He goes, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. How do we get here? How, how do we get to this place? Jesus goes, I've been sowing things in the world. And he goes, and the enemy, the devil, has been sowing people and things into the world as well. And the, the reason you find yourself in this place of like, how did we get here, this disillusionment, is because he goes, there's been two realities at play the whole time. And so that first question is like, how, okay, how do we get here? I think the second primal question then is, not just how do we get here, in light of where we're at, what do we do as followers of Jesus? Like, what should we do? It's the question of Psalm 11, verse three, where the psalmist says, hey, Lord, when the foundations are being shaken, what should the righteous do? It's that cry of the human heart, right? It's what you see right here in the text. Look back at verse 28. He says, an enemy did this, he replied. And then the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? And guys, it's such a normal, primal human response. 
They go, we see evil in the world, we see all sorts. Like, Jesus, do you want us to go pull them up? And, and I wanna be really careful that you don't read between the lines here. This is a much easier conversation to have in the safety and security of Nashville than it is for most of the world. So I don't want you to read between any lines here. I wanna also really, really encourage you. You know, the question they don't ask is, hey, Jesus, if evil is coming against us, can we protect ourselves or defend ourselves? Or Like, that's not the question that's asked. They are on the offensive here and they're going, hey, Jesus, do you want us to go deal with evil? You can almost hear it, right? Like, do you want us to go pluck them up? And remember what Jesus is talking about. He says, we're talking about people. And if, if you forget that we're talking about people, Jesus' response, guys, it's so, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. To the Western church, he offends us with his sexual ethic. All the time I'm talking to Western Christians who are going, Jesus, how can Jesus tell me who to sleep with or not sleep with? And that part of his teaching is offensive to Western Christians. But his ethic of peace and of forgiveness and of mercy and of love and of how you treat your enemy is offensive in other parts of the world where they come face to face, not just with ideological enemies, but with very real enemies. And so we have to sit under the weight of Jesus' teaching with humility and charity and asking the Holy Spirit, okay, help us here. They go, what should we do? Do you want us to go deal with it? You want us to go dip, pluck it up? And, and, and Jesus' response is no. He goes, because inevitably you will pluck up some of the good when you try to deal with the bad. And you will leave some of the bad when you try to deal with the good. In other words, Jesus is very kindly saying, what makes us think we're smart enough, wise enough, strong enough to deal with justice on the earth in a way that is truly lined up with the heart of God? Guys, I know we all know this, but man, we would make miserable gods. We'd be terrible judges. Man, aren't you glad he's not like you? Aren't you glad he's not like me? Aren't you glad his perspective's not limited? And so essentially what Jesus is saying, no, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I, I, I want you to trust that I'm not gonna let evil go unchecked. I want you to trust me that in the end, evil's not gonna win. I want, I want you to trust me that the story's not, not done. No, I don't want you to pluck them up. I want you to trust me. I kept thinking of the words of Romans 12 this week. It'll be on the screen. Listen to this. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul's gonna say it's not always possible to live at peace because it's two sides to that. He goes, but from your side, I want you to do your best. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. I want you to notice that he says, don't take revenge, but leave room for God to be God, right? Listen to this, he goes, it is mine to avenge, and I will what, says the Lord, I will repay on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think about a story this week uh, where Hamas came in and captured this elderly couple, this Israeli couple. And uh, before they were gonna execute them, this elderly couple, uh, the woman said, hey, do you mind if sort of our last act of kindness and charity towards you, can we make you a meal? And it just kind of stunned the captors. 
So she and her husband made a meal and served a meal, and their intention was just to try to live out the words of Jesus. How do I, how do I bless my enemy? How do I walk this out? Guys, absolutely radical. And in the midst of them serving their captors, um, they were rescued. It wasn't the reason they did it, but it's the way it un, uh, unfolded. And guys, just the, uh, I want you to sit in this parable that Jesus is giving. He goes, hey, the world's gonna shake. Hard days are gonna come. You're gonna question how did we get here. You're gonna question what should we do. And he's essentially saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. Don't, don't take this into your own hands with human strength. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And then the third I believe primal question of the heart is we're trying to trust Jesus when the world is tough. The third question is, okay, essentially then where's all of this going? If we're gonna trust you, where, where is all of this story headed? Verse 30, he answered them, let both grow together. What's the both? Wicked and righteous, good and evil. Let both grow together, what? Until the time of the harvest. So Jesus, he gives this teaching here that it really strikes against the, the, the two dominant worldviews of our day. You know, one of those dominant worldviews says that evil is just gonna continue growing, growing, growing until evil finally decimates the human uh, species. That's one worldview, that evil is just gonna overrun everything and win. The other worldview on the other side is that that with the right policies and the right leaders and uh, all the right things, evil's not gonna win, but, but we're gonna achieve human utopia by our wisdom, by our strength, by our intellect. And Jesus is gonna go, no, neither one of those things are gonna play out quite that way. He goes, here's what you're gonna see is that both wickedness and righteousness are going to mature together all the way to the end. In other words, Evil is gonna get more creative and visionary and courageous and persistent at being evil. And we, we see that. The world is gonna make up new ways of being evil. You're gonna constantly be shocked at the ways that evil is going to become evil. And if you stopped right there, it'd be really depressing. But what's the other side of that coin? What's the other side of that parable? He goes, he goes but righteousness is gonna mature as well. He goes, both of these things are gonna ripen together. Wickedness and righteousness are going to mature together. If you've ever had a garden, what happens if you pick the fruit before it's ripe? Tastes terrible, you know, like uh, in our family, we love avocados and I'll go to the store and Sid's like, get some ripe avocados and sometimes you get there at Kroger and they're not ripe and I try to do the thing where it's like, maybe it's ripe and you get home and it's like, ugh. Guys, I'm just telling you, you don't have to understand this. We don't have to understand this. But Jesus is gonna say, he wants the church to ripen into her righteousness. That the, the, that the Lord does not wanna come back for a bride that has not yet ripened into her beauty, into her strength, into the fullness of who God is in her. But as righteous has to ripen, he goes, wickedness will ripen alongside of it. And I believe the implications of this are as the world continues to get more creative 
with evil, uh, the church in the last days, whether that's 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years from now, I believe the church in the last days is gonna be the most brilliant, bold, beautiful, spirit-filled, loving, humble, generous, miracle-working, radical, set on fire for the Lord. Like the church in, in, in days is not gonna necessarily be the biggest, most accomplished, most successful, but it's gonna be pure and beautiful and brilliant and bright because Jesus goes, both of these things have to grow together till the end. How did we get here? He goes, good and evil at work. What do we do? Trust me in all of it. Where is this going? Righteousness and wickedness growing up together. That's why I believe the wedding, Cana, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine was not just solving a problem. It was a sign of what's to come because you remember the end of that story where the master of the banquet stood up and said, who saves the best wine for last? And John goes, this is a sign because I believe that human history will one day look back on the church right before the return of Jesus and goes, I cannot believe he saved the best for last. That the most brilliant, beautiful, miracle-working church in human history, I do not believe will be Acts 2 and then everything was just like a slide down, slide down, slide down until Jesus showed up. But that type of church is gonna be birthed in the context of righteousness and wickedness growing in the same field together. And so if all of this is true, like what's, what's the call? What's the call on us as followers of Jesus? We're gonna lay in the plane very, very quickly and we'll receive communion and we'll end our time together. Like what, what, what's the call? Just two simple things. Number one, I think it's the call to be radiant. I think it's the call to be a church that's radiant. You know, that's what you see in verse 43. He goes, the church will, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever and ever and ever. This is the language that you see in that prophecy we studied this summer from Daniel chapter 12, verses one through four. He goes, a time is coming when information will travel across the earth faster than it ever has, when people will travel further than they've ever traveled. He goes, when that happens, wickedness will rise up and the righteous will begin to shine like stars in the heaven. It's a call to be radiant. So Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, you're the light of the world. City on a hill can't be hidden. Don't, don't hide. Guys, part of the call on the church in this season is that we would begin radiating the character, the humility, the beauty, the wisdom of Jesus everywhere that you go. Jesus has planted his people in every sphere of society, not to hide, not to bunker down, not to look out for our own interests, but to radiate the very character and the glory of God. I love Psalm 34, verse five. It'll be up on the screen. I love this. He goes, those who look to him are what? They're radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Guys, whatever you fix your eyes upon in the week is what you radiate. And guys, I just confess, I spent way too much time this week reading the news, reading the updates. And when, when, when your face is pointing in the wrong direction, you radiate fear, you radiate greed, you radiate all the stuff, but when your face is upon the Lord, it, it's like that scene in 2 Corinthians 3, verse seven, where Paul is saying, by the Spirit of God, he goes, unlike Moses, you know, Moses came down from the mountain, his face was radiating, he had to cover it up because it freaked everybody out. 2 Corinthians 3, verse seven, he goes, but we're not like that. He goes, we behold the glory of the Lord, and our faces are what? They're unveiled so that the world around us will see. Guys, this is not the time for your faith to become small, fearful, and privatized. Not the moment for your faith to become small, fearful, privatized, self-serving. 
We radiate the love. We radiate the humility. We radiate the boldness and the beauty of King Jesus. We're a church that's radiant. Next week, the parable we're gonna look at is all around practically how do we fill up our lives to radiate the glory. So that's where we're going next week and just kind of building some bridges for us here, okay? So we, we, we're radiant. Second thing is we're not just radiant, but we're radical. We're radical. Guys, it's a radical church that learns how to be bold in a field that has both wickedness and righteousness maturing together. Did you notice Jesus doesn't go, hey, there's two fields, you know, one for the kingdom of God and one for, he goes, no, it's all together. And guys, I'm sick of hearing the word radical only attached to evil. Is anybody else tired of hearing the word radical attached to evil? I believe a moment's coming where the primary description of the people of God is they are radical. They're radical with their love. They're radical in their humility. They're radical in their generosity. They're radical in their vision. They're radical in their courage. They're radical in their mission. They're radical. They're living it out. They're leading it out in every space where God has planted them. So many ways, I, I could just tell stories for days. I wish I had more time. I just think about all these moments in our church. I think about Jonathan and Shauna and Chris and Lacey, both folks within our church that have started ministries to serve people from other nations that have come here as refugees. And in a moment where people are scared and not always knowing how to trust people that aren't like them, we have people in our church and teams in our church that are going, hey, no, we, we don't shy back. We go into and we serve and we love and we walk out the ways of Jesus. It's radical. Think about Brett and Marari. You know, Brett and Marari, they have an amazing ministry where they go, man, the drug addicted, the poor, those living on the streets, those have, that experienced abuse and have been abusers, how do we bring them in? How do we minister to them? How do we disciple them? How do we train them vocationally? It's radical. It's not a hiding my light under a bushel. They're radiating the light of Jesus wherever they've been sent. It's radical. Think about a sweet young couple that's getting married tomorrow. This is their wedding weekend, and I was praying with them earlier this week. They're having a destination wedding down at the beach. A little mad they didn't invite me. They're down at the beach, and I'm like, hey, how can I pray for you as you come into your wedding weekend? And they said, we have all of these friends and family members that are not followers of Jesus. They're all gonna be together for three or four days. And they said, on Sunday night, we're gonna have a bonfire on the beach, we're gonna eat barbecue, and then we're gonna open up a moment for everybody to get baptized. They said, already we know four people in our family or friend group that are getting baptized on Sunday night, and we're praying for this person, this person, this person. Guys, when I got married, I wasn't thinking like that. <laughs> it's radical. It's radical. We have an opportunity. We have a moment. We're going to lift Jesus high. We're going to radiate. This isn't about us. It's, it's about him. We're, we're going to live radically. Think about every Friday night, a group of young adults that literally meets across the street from this building that we're in. And every Friday night, they spend an hour worshiping, praying, beholding the glory of the Lord. And then they go down on Broadway and they minister to the hurting. It's radical. It's radical. Guys, whether it's 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, whatever, we know human history is gonna keep moving in such a way that the heart's gonna go, how do we get here? What do we do? God, where is all of this going? And Jesus is gonna say, I've told you these things so your heart would not be shaken. Do not hide, do not shrink back, do not play it safe. Don't live out a privatized faith. Shine like stars, shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father right where I've planted you. And trust that I'll use you however I see fit. You know, I, I don't know where you're at this morning. There's some of you this morning, maybe as we come to communion, your area of repentance is 
I've kind of gotten sucked up into the fear and the self-preservation and I've shrunk back and I'm playing it safe. And some of you this morning, as you come to the cross and as you look at the courage of Jesus that went through the worst moment in human history, trusting his father, some of you this morning just, okay, Lord, we watch how you handle this. Will you give us courage to live radiant, radical lives in your kingdom? Some of you this morning, you've been kind of fearful playing it safe and as we come to the cross, we take the bread, we take the cup, you need the Lord to bring you out of that. There's some of you this morning, maybe you've been running into going, okay, I'm gonna do this in my own strength. I'm gonna figure this out in my own strength. And, and maybe you've been trying to do some good things, but you've been doing it with the devil's energy. Now, maybe that's not what you'd say about yourself, and we're not gonna make you wear that name tag. You know, good things for the glory of the devil. Like, um, that's never the intention. But it's possible to do good things when wrong motives, wrong energy. And maybe this morning you're like, okay, Lord, I need your help to trust you. I need your help to trust you. Wherever you are, we all come to the foot of the cross, the grace of the cross. We say, Lord, thank you for leading us so well. So let me stand together. I'm gonna pray for us. When I'm done praying, if you're a parent, if you'll go get your children and bring your children back in here for communion together, uh, we're, we're gonna have a special time of communion together, parents and kids. But for the rest of you, you can circle your chairs up and uh, take communion together. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing. God, thank you for the way you just, you just lead us, you teach us. Would, would you fill our hearts with hope, with vision, with courage, and Lord, help us to live and to lean all the way in to what it is that you've made us for. Um, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the way you've modeled this. Thank you for the way you're teaching this. Thank you for the way you're leading. And uh, God, let us, let us be a church that radiates um, uh, just every bit of your character into the world around us right now. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. I love you. Let's come forward. Let's receive communion. If you want to receive prayer, there's men and women at the Respond Banner that'd love to pray with you. Go get your kids, bring them in, take communion with them, and I will end with a little bit of worship. Love you guys.